This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Today we go one-on-one, Bill and I. We're going to have a conversation about podcasts to come, sort of a new chapter that we're entering here, Bill. Absolutely. When we started out, Jordan, trying to figure out uh, where to begin, chapter one was always going to be the more, the more difficult one, mm-hmm. I think, the way I saw it. And we, we did that, and we just completed that. And that was about policing in America today, where we are, where we're headed, how we can make things better. And I, I think we, we ended that with the last episode uh, with Frank Zaffaro that worked, it was perfect, a perfect ending. But now it's time for us to sort of transition into an area that um, some people may find um, exactly what they're looking for. I think most people will. And that's to talk about criminal investigations, a real in-depth view that will take many, many episodes. Well, you've written a book about one particular investigation. You've written about other uh, projects you've worked on, and they are complex. It's not an an hour episode of Law and Order that's solved and done, and then you go on to the next one. No, absolutely. And, and I, you know, when I, when I think about why I wrote it the way that I did or why I wrote it in the first place, it was more of an education for people to understand that this isn't a one-hour TV show where, A, things are concocted and put together to fit in in one hour or to fit into a, a Netflix uh, special or, or, or whatever the case may be, an, an article. Um, that's fiction, and this is nonfiction, and nonfiction means the truth, the, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and you need to be able to cover it from beginning to end, and what I wanted to be able to show, and I'm hoping in these next episodes we will show, is the the, the, the dedication that it takes, the difficulty that it takes, how many people uh, have to be involved uh, in the interoperability of all kinds of, not just policing agencies, but crime labs and DA's offices and medical examiner and it is so much more complex. Such a team approach as we'll discuss in upcoming episodes with great guests that you're lining up. Uh, a note about what you're teaching other investigators these days, and you have a particular allusion to something that I thought was interesting, uh, the sailboat and the sailor. Yeah, I, I came up with that one day when I was teaching a couple of years ago, and it seemed to make sense, and it still makes sense. So the, the, the idea being the wind is the wind, and you learn how to corral that wind and move forward. Uh, and not be blown off course and, and, uh, or, or in irons where there's, you're not moving at all. Uh, and I'm not a sailor, but, I, but this is probably why I'm not a sailor. But I started thinking boats are boats. Are boats. And so you can have a sailboat that is a, that's a 16-footer with a narrow beam, and, but it still has a, a mast and it still has a sail and it still has cleats and it still has a rudder, um, just like the big boats do. The big boats may be more sophisticated. It may take a, a little bit more knowledge and, and all to to sail that big boat, but the concept is still the same. So the little boat, while you're learning, keeps you in the inner harbor or keeps you on a pond, um, but once you start to, to gain confidence um, in the best way to sail, then you can step up and you, your game steps up and you, you have a better boat, a bigger boat. Um, again, more sophisticated, perhaps, equipment, but it's still the same basic idea. If you can sail a small boat, well, you can sail a big boat well. Case with everything, experience matters, and you get to know uh, the the ways of the road exactly. and understand things. One thing that's totally understandable and has to be right up front, and you state this as the practical matter, the burden of proving a case always on the government, the government in this case, investigators, part of that uh, government team. Uh, absolutely. And t- the two things there, uh, the burden of proof is on us to prove, 
And the proof that you have to ha offer is beyond a reasonable doubt. Unlike a civil case where you've got to prove more likely than not, you have to nail it down so that the people, the 12 people sitting on that jury or the, and or the judge don't have a reason to um, find reasonable doubt. There's so many different uh, ways to look at cases, too. Sometimes it's, it's a very direct evidence-related case. There was a shooter. The shooter was caught at the scene. There was a rapist. The rapist was caught at the scene. Uh, he gave you a statement or she gave you a statement. And, uh, you know, the evidence is there, et cetera. And then there's a circumstantial case. And that's a lot more difficult because you're tying all different pieces of evidence together yeah. To, in, into a mosaic that is understandable. And you have to be very careful because evidence can be tainted, evidence can be thrown out. So I know you go to great lengths to make sure that the evidence gathered uh, is is as solid as it can be for all the right reasons. A absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the big issues that, that comes up now more than ever on um, on physical evidence is was it contaminated? Um, and, and if so, how is it contaminated? And sometimes that's as simple as uh, it's a fire scene, and the first firefighters in or the ambulance drivers or the first police come into a scene, and they wind up stepping on evidence. Their job is to save the person's life uh, or, or to bring an end to a, to a confrontation. At the same time in doing that, they may alter the evidence in a way that um, um, makes it unusable in a courtroom. What we're going to talk about with your help and the people you're going to bring in is the process of the investigation, where it actually begins and how it uh, travails, how it moves along. So where does an investigation generally begin? Well, it depends on, on who you are, uh, and uh, or the, or not so much who you are, but where the, what the role is that you play. I know when I was brand new, when I was responding to scenes, my head was stuck on um, making sure that the crime scene was preserved uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, the, the yellow tape was up and the right people were there and nobody was inside the scene and somebody didn't go over and pick up a gun for safety purposes and put their fingerprints all over it. So you're the first detective responder, so you, you need to be all over that. As a supervisor, where it started to change was I, I thought of the end game on my way to a, to a case. The people are already there. You gave them some advice on, on how to handle it. You hope that they already knew how to handle it, but it doesn't hurt to, to add to that little bit of advice. But you start to, like I said, you're thinking about the end game. You're thinking about the prosecution of the case and the preservation of the evidence and the preservation of eyewitness test, you know, statements, uh, canvassing the neighborhood. Doing as much as you can mm -hmm. not to let things get away from you. There'd be a time, maybe a bad analogy, but I would say you need to throw the circus tent over the circus that's there, keep it com confined, and then you can work out from that. But there's, you, there's a whole litany of things, uh, starting with the response to a crime scene that we've already talked briefly about. Um, is it an active scene or do you need a search warrant? But run through, if you could, some of the other things that you're thinking about as an investigator in the, in the opening moments of this uh, episode of crime that we're talking about. One, one of the first things um, is, uh, well, we, we have to follow the Constitution, and, and we do follow the Constitution, excuse me, and the laws that are related to it. And so it's, all right, do I need a search warrant? What have I got? Do I have an inside scene? Do I have a scene that's, that there's no expectation of privacy? Uh, do I have a situation where I may be able to get consent? Uh, is there an exigency that allows me to go into an area to look for particular you know, pieces of evidence? Or do I need a search warrant? And, and generally, um, when you've experienced it this and you've been through it enough times, you know you need a search warrant. And then, uh, so, that, so that 
sounds nice. And I've, I've seen this on TV shows where they say, oh, yeah, it's being written right now. We should have it in a half an hour. <laughs> These things take six hours, eight hours, ten hours. They always wake the judge oh, up or, oh, or disturb oh, yeah. the judge from a dinner party or something a- on TV. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. and you have to, pardon the term, but you have to come up with a, a search warrant that ultimately when you go to trial, or you go through the motions where they want to—if you if you recover something that's important to a case, the defense's job is to try to knock that out. So they're going to attack your your search warrant or your lack of search warrant, and you better be able to, to justify um, to, to the court why you did what you did and why legally you were able to do that. And so that's—that, you know, where I worked, uh, we had uh, a DA's office, um, and I would dare say, I think in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, every DA's office has a search warrant team now, uh, and they'll work with you. And so, yeah, I, I'm, the, I'm the police officer, and I know what I saw, I know what I did, I know the information that I've collected, but I want a DA that's sitting there with me so that they make it— um, or they so that we meet the the required the standards, standards right. of the court, uh, and not leave something out or put or put or put some things in there that that shouldn't be in there. The constitutional considerations involve everything from the search and seizure, as you might point out, to uh, how you interrogate someone, uh, the right there that they have, of course, to counsel, but how you interrogate someone, how so, you interview someone. People don't think that it's uh, or people may think that it's like the third degree you see in the old movies with Humphrey Bogart but there is a very very uh, standard protocol you have to follow it, exactly exactly and and you know you can uh, you can how do I how do I put it you, there's a skeleton that, that's going to be there that you have to work with all right this is what the law says if I'm going to conduct a, an interview where am I? Where am I doing it? Does that mean I need to give somebody them, their Miranda rights or not? If I'm outside and they're not in a custodial situation, then I don't have to. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't, um, because what you're doing is you're advising people of their rights. It's not a confrontational situation. We've like you just alluded to. You watch it on TV and they're screaming at a guy that he's got his rights. That's not not the not the idea. The idea is I just want to make sure that constitutionally you understand. You have the right to remain silent. Whatever we talk about can can and, and will be mm-hmm. used against you. You have a right to an attorney. Um, you know, a couple of other little things that, that are in the Miranda warnings. And then you have them sign off on it to show that they understood it and there wasn't a language issue. Or if there was a language issue, that you had an interpreter and they understood. And these are the kind of the, the things that are really cropping up more and more in, in, in the courts are arguments that I didn't understand English. I didn't understand what I was signing off on, et cetera. So that, again, you just, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, trying to find somebody that speaks the, in the dialect and the language of the person that's there is difficult. So that can hinder your right. ability to try to do an interview. We're going to be doing a deep dive then into the discovery process and the, uh, the inculpatory versus the exculpatory evidence and all of that kind of stuff you're going to cover on the upcoming series. Yes, we are. Every, every bit of it. And just to go back a little bit on the, when we were talking about search and seizure, do I need a warrant? Do I not? Secondary or, pr- or maybe primary to that is um, what's my, what is my crime scene? Uh, the crime scene is obviously where, you, where a victim is found, but is there a secondary one? Is there a motor vehicle involved? Is, did you find the body in one location and, in fact, the incident took place in another location? Is, is there a cell phone that may have information? Is there a computer that may have information? All of our cars have like a black box in them that will give us an awful lot of information about where the car was, et cetera. Um, and when you do that, so you may be writing five or six warrants on the same case for different things. But to, to skip one of those steps, learn from information, for example, from something you searched and seized without a warrant 
and that gives you information that leads you to another warrant. Well, you can't have that other warrant now on the, the information or the evidence from that other warrant because you, the way that you got there, it's called it, the fruit of the poisonous tree, and you, you just can't do it. It's really true that uh, law enforcement officials these days have to really understand the law. That's why many of them, including you, have a law degree, have gone to law mm-hmm. school. Um, before we get to the final, uh, and it's not a small uh, deal at all, we're going to talk about forensic sciences in upcoming episodes. You say developing a strategy to move forward, prepare to think like a defense attorney. I know we're all part of the justice system, but uh, that's something that you do and, and experienced investigators do? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, my first homicide that was solved was in 1978, and the first assistant district attorney who had the case had been a prior defense attorney. And I, in my, you know, usual foolish way, thinking, what's he, what, a defense attorney is going to be the, the prosecutor in this case? What does he know about what a prosecution takes? Uh, I quickly learned he knows everything about that. And it was a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Banks who went on to become a Superior Court Justice, premier, premier educator um, uh, and, and, and mentor to me um, through the years. And uh, you, you, what he said to me the next day is, so where do we go from here? I don't know. You know, the victim's dead. We've got somebody in custody. We're, we're good to go. He went, no, 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 no. What do you think the defense is going to be in this case? And I said, um, I don't know that he's crazy. He said, exactly. It'll probably be an insanity defense. What do we need to do to prove an insanity defense? Where is the defense going to find holes in our investigation? We need to think about this as though we were defense attorneys, and then we need to make those areas of our case as tight and strong as we can to limit the amount of defense that can be used against you. And it was like this great awakening. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you, you, you see this skies open up over your head. And, Jesus, I never would have thought of it that way. Right. And so all the, so the three or four decades that I've been teaching, that's a primary part of the way I teach is understand our responsibilities are on both sides. Um, if you were to ask most listeners, uh, non-professional uh, law enforcement listeners, they would get most excited at what's coming up in the series of podcasts to come. And that involves forensic sciences, which have Thanks to shows like CSI, people are really uh, digging that kind of thing, and it's everywhere. But um, let's run down some of the topics that you'll be covering and we'll be presenting here on the podcast. Sure. Some, some of them are, are, are very basic. Um, the, when I say basic, we've used them for years. Uh, fingerprints, for one. But, but the one thing that's um, exciting, I guess— is probably the right word, is from the old days of just fingerprint and fingerprint cards and you send them off to the FBI. Now there are fantastic um, technical systems that in moments can tell you who those fingerprints belong to or, or not. It, it, it doesn't, it, it's not that everybody's fingerprints show up in this big thing that completely identify, you know, aside from the other couple of hundred million people in the country. But there is really good advance. That would used to take like nine months to a year to get an answer to. Now mm. is moments. Mm. Um, hair and fiber, the same thing. The things that we're able to find uh, from a piece of hair because of DNA, um, fiber that we can tie back into a, a, a bed in the event or, or a rug in the event that that, you know, these, the, the thing about all of the forensic sciences is they do, like finding DNA does not win your case for you. It helps, but it's supportive evidence to the overall effort of the investigation. And what really matters is what you learn through your interviews, your interrogations with people, um, collecting other forms of evidence and being able to tie the two or three or four or five of them together is the, is the way it matters. But it, it is, like I, again, I've seen on some TV shows where, oh, we got DNA, we're all set. 
It helps. It's a mm. real great supportive thing, but it isn't it. You got things like chemical analysis, fire and explosion, forensic entomology. It's not used as much in this part of the country as it is in other parts of the country in the world, but it is a great process. It, it has to do with recovery. I, anybody that watched uh, Silence of the Lambs were, where they pulled um, – um, some sort of a bug. I can't remember. I watched this so yeah. long ago. They pull a bug out of a decedent's um, throat, and they were right. able to track that down to a certain part of the country. That is fascinating. It, it is. And you can tell, you know, not to get gross about it, but if somebody's been dead for a while, chances of finding maggots is pretty strong uh, on the body. And entomologists can go back and track life cycles of maggots. So you know whether this maggot's two days old or it's the product of another maggot that may have been there for 10 days before Amazing, this. amazing. And of course, something that is relatively new to the scene in life, in culture, and that's uh, social media, cell phone videos, um, all that kind of stuff, including uh, closed circuit TV, all of that kind of stuff aids in an investigation like it never did before. Dramatically. Yeah. Absolutely. Dram- when I go back and look at the unsolved cases from the 70s and the 80s and um, realize, boy, if I only had, you know, if the, if, the, if there was a camera up on that roadway where that body was dumped, we'd be in a lot better position. If there was cameras at the uh, CVS store, if there was uh, at a gas station, any number of things. But policing now, we, we talk about what do you do when you first get there. One of the things, again, depending on the amount of personnel that you have, is for somebody to immediately go and locate every camera that they can find, whether it's the ring phone cameras or most businesses have cameras. If you if you look, for example, at the Marathon bombing in Boston, the Shania brothers were identified initially because a private company who had outside cameras um, because they were looking for the theft, who was committing the thefts, mm-hmm. their cameras, and then cameras from some, some of the local liquor establishments who had cameras because they needed to make sure that somebody was not arriving or leaving drunk. But but everything that showed up on that became critical to proving and, and locating, those, first of all, identifying and then locating those two guys. Right, right. And so now, and again, most of that we can get, but most of that we get with search warrants. And in, in, within the law, it is the one area that you need to check on weekly to make sure that they haven't come up with, they being the courts, haven't come up with, with a, a case that uh, dictates you to, mm-hmm. to reroute. And if you go back to the, the two books that I wrote, one of them, uh, which was The uh, Murderous Rage, but but in it, um, the person who's responsible for that, we needed warrants for, it, for his computer at his house and his computer at work. And that created all kinds of, of issues, not technical issues, but um, the propriety interest of the company um, and, you know, what, it, what evidence could wind up with the defense counsel and all that. Um, but it, that's the first case in Massachusetts where they addressed the search of a computer and the limitations on the search of a computer. And they kind of looked at it like it was a file cabinet. And you can take the file cabinet, but then you need another warrant to get in and find out. And it, it just to go specifically, to, you know, to the, to the areas that you need and want to go to and not just make a general uh, search. We will be drilling down on these complexities yeah. and telling stories about the investigative process. I can't wait for the upcoming series. Bill, as always, you bring uh, the experience and the knowledge and the, I think, the uh, enthusiasm to making things right to the program. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm, I'm believe me, as excited as you are, and I've spoken to many people uh, who <clears throat> about guesting and um, and are assisting us in the preparation of an episode and then bringing in an expert here or there. Sometimes people 
who are still active in the business are a little bit nervous where they're an employee of the state of the city uh, and they're currently working in a, in a crime scene area, for example, that they may be reluctant to be guests, and I completely understand that. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't help educate me and, and teach me more about the, um, the topic that we're going to be covering. So, Excellent. Good, good, good. That was great. Thanks. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.